Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're here with Corbin Stanley. Corbin, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. My name is Corbin Stanley. I'm a third-year PhD student here at Michigan State in the Ecological Community Psychology Program. My research focuses on the role of intersectionality in increased risk for suicide among youth. So that looks at how multiple marginalized identities increases risk for suicide among youth, specifically racial and ethnic minorities, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals, as well as gender minority individuals. I also look at the role of research and translating it into policy and how we can better communicate our research as scientists to policymakers. Well, there's a lot there to unpack when it comes to talking about, one, the relationship between minorities and suicide rates. Could you elaborate a little bit more on like what that means in your day-to-day research? Yeah, so my research focuses on the intersection of marginalization. There's a lot of research out there about how marginalized individuals, specifically those who are racial and ethnic minorities and those who are members of the LGBTQ plus community, are at increased risk for suicide. There's very little research on how the combination of those identities might exacerbate risk for suicide, especially among youth. So in my day-to-day research, I look at how the combination of multiple identities, for example, an African-American female who identifies as a lesbian would be considered a minority in kind of three different social categories, including sexual identity, race, and gender. And so I look at how the combination of marginalization in multiple categories can exacerbate suicide risk for youth in particular. Basically, it just means it kind of increases risk. So in my research, I found that the more marginalized identities a youth has, the more likely they are to be at risk for suicide. Uh, sort of as the number of marginalized identities increases, their suicide risk tends to increase as well. Being that this is such an important topic, what previous evidence exists out there that shows that correlation between a person that has this marginalized identity compared to the rate of suicide? So there's a lot of research that shows that, especially within racial and ethnic minority communities, that there is increased risk for suicide. A lot of this has to do with sort of like the social norms regarding mental health and how some communities view mental health. For example, there's research that suggests that African Americans are much less likely to seek help if they're feeling sort of distress or in a suicidal crisis or having sort of mental health conditions, uh, symptoms of a mental health condition. And so that's one area of research that kind of focuses on the stigma around mental health and suicide and how it kind of decreases help-seeking behavior for those who might be experiencing a crisis. There's also some research from, for example, the Trevor Project that looks at suicide rates and kind of suicidal ideation or those thoughts of suicide that a person experiences and how those rates are elevated for those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, or otherwise non-binary or sexual minorities. And those rates, there's sort of a range of increased risk, but in general, those who identify as LGBTQ+, are two to eight times more likely to attempt suicide and to think about suicide. And so there are a lot of research that looks at how, kind of in these separate social categories, there's increased risk for suicide. You've mentioned African-American ethnicities pretty often. I'm curious, is that the only ethnicity that you focus on, or do you focus on a variety of them? I focus on a variety of racial and ethnic minorities. A lot of my research focuses on African-American youth because there tends to be a higher population of that minority group 
in the specific context in which I work, which tends to be uh, mid-Michigan and sort of the tri-county area around Michigan State. And so my research focuses more often on African-American youth, but most of the data I look at looks at multiple racial and ethnic identities. And how do you gather this data? Has this already been provided to you, or do you go out there and uh, conduct the surveys? In my most recent project, my most recent study, I got data from the Department of Education from the state of Michigan. So I got secondary data from the MIFI survey, which is the Michigan Profile for Healthy Youth. And this is a survey that's administered in middle schools and high schools in 7th, 9th, and 11th grades across the state of Michigan. And so I got the data for middle schools and high schools in Clinton, Eaton, and Ingham counties here around Michigan State University and analyzed that data for my master's thesis. There are some other uh, sort of secondary data I look at, such as census data and data from other national secondary sources as well. And I'm hoping to get into more primary data collection in the future. Well, first of all, I think it's really incredible that you're able to actually obtain this data from the schools. How, what, what was that process even like in regards to difficulty? Like, did you f- run into many obstacles going through this kind of process? It was challenging at first to get the data from the Department of Education. Understandably, they're very protective of student data, primarily for student safety and making sure to keep the identities of the youth anonymous. So the data I got from the Department of Education was de-identified. So there are no names, there are no specific kind of identifiable markers, so that if I were looking for the data, even if I wanted to and tried really hard, I wouldn't be able to identify which response was matched with which student. So that that was helpful, and I entered into a data use agreement with the Department of Education through the Eaton Regional Education Service Agency. So I work with a number of local coalitions and community partners, and going in with them and their support was very helpful in getting the data from the Department of Education as well. Well, then following after the collection of all of this data and following the completion of your analysis, what did the data actually prove to show in regards to this interrelationship that you're trying to understand? Sure. So I found that those youth who had more than one marginalized identity were at significantly increased risk for suicide. So I did what's called a cluster analysis and kind of grouped the youth based on their responses to the suicide risk questions. And in looking at those groups, there were three groups that emerged from that analysis, a low risk, a medium risk, and a high risk. And those in the high risk group were significantly more likely to have more than one marginalized identity. And basically, as the number of marginalized identities increases, so does the suicide risk for those youth. So what I also wanted to look at was how, given this data, what does that mean? What can we do about it? And so I also looked at the role of social support as a protective factor for youth suicide. So I looked at how social support at the family level, at the school level, and at the community level might reduce suicide risk for youth. And there I found that increased social support in any one of those categories reduces suicide risk for youth. What protective factors have been found to be positively correlated with reducing the risk of suicide within marginalized identities? In my research, I found that social support was one of the greatest predictors of reduced suicide risk. So I looked at social support across ecological levels, so meaning across all of these different contexts in which youth are, including family, school, and community. And I found that increases in social support in any of those categories reduced suicide risk. There's also a lot to be said for peer support. So having friends and family members who understand suicide risk and might look out for those warning signs and kind of reach out if if they might be struggling. 
There's also a lot to be said for sort of self-care strategies related to mental health, including, you know, good eating habits, good exercise habits, and just kind of making sure that you take that time for yourself when you need it. So those are some of what the research says. With their analysis complete, how do you ensure that the results that you have found in your experiment are disseminated across the different areas that are affected by this, like public school systems, for example? Yeah, so I have presented some of these findings to local curriculum directors and coalitions and other agencies in the area. I'm part of a local coalition called the Tri-County Lifesavers Suicide Prevention Coalition. And in that group, we have a lot of representatives from education, including, you know, superintendents and principals, as well as public policy and other kind of sectors in the community. So I presented to that coalition at first and have kind of been invited to present my research in other avenues. So it's just kind of making them aware of that, as well as making sure that the research is presented in sort of an accessible way. So I do a lot of sort of infographics and data visualization to make sure that it's kind of digestible information as well. It sounds like it's a little bit different from how academia shares their research, where there's differences in conferences where people will go and present their research either in the form of a talk or a poster presentation. It sounds more like you actually interact more with the groups that are affected by this research more directly. Right. So I make it a big goal of mine with all the research and projects I do is that I'm doing that academic side of things. I'm presenting at conferences. I'm publishing. But I'm also making sure that the data and the research benefits the community directly. There's a big kind of research to practice gap we see in academia. And especially with something as you know serious and timely as suicide prevention, I want to make sure that the community can access this data, can access the research, and can make meaningful kind of next steps out of it. What are ways that the community can be more literate in suicide prevention? Right. So there are several warning signs that they can look out for. One of our programs with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention talks about kind of three major categories of warning signs to look out for. And those are talk, mood, and behavior. So basically what you want to look out for is anything that sort of deviates from typical behavior for that individual person. For talk, it might be things like talking about, you know, I feel like I'm a burden to others. I can't be here anymore. I don't want to do this anymore you know, more subtle ways that they might talk about it. They might be more direct and say, you know, I'm thinking about suicide, but it's not always that direct. With things like mood, you want to look for depression or apathy or rage, kind of anxiety, things that, again, are kind of atypical for that person in particular. For mood, you also want to be on the lookout for a sudden unexplained happiness. A lot of times, those who are in a suicidal crisis, if they've sort of made the decision that they want to end their life, um, they may experience a sort of sense of relief about that. And so if, especially after like a prolonged period of extended depression, there's sort of this sudden unexplained happiness, that might be something to look out for. And then with regard to behavior, you want to look for things that are, again, are atypical for that person, such as giving away possessions, acting recklessly, spending recklessly, withdrawing from activities they used to engage in, or isolating themselves from family or friends. And so it's not necessarily about looking for, you know, a certain number of warning signs within a certain period of time, but it's just about trusting your gut. And if something is sort of out of the ordinary for that person, reaching out and having a conversation with them. What does someone do if they notice that someone is exhibiting these signs? Sure. So you, what you want to do is you want to reach out to that person and have a conversation. And you want to do that with them in private. You don't want to necessarily do this in front of a class or in a cafeteria. 
you want to pull them aside and basically just say, you know, I noticed that you've said some things or I've noticed some behavior out of the ordinary for you and I'm concerned. And then you want to ask the question directly. There's a lot of sort of myths out there that if you say the word suicide or if you talk about it, it's going to put the idea in the person's head. In reality, the research shows that if you ask directly, say, are you thinking about suicide or are you thinking about killing yourself? If you ask that question directly, one, it lets that person know that you've noticed that they might be in distress. It also lets that person know that you're a safe person to talk to and that they can talk to you about that. And it kind of takes away that stigma associated with suicide. And so that's the first step is kind of reaching out and asking that question directly. And then you want to listen to them, listen to their story, you know, let them tell you kind of what they've been experiencing in terms of their distress and listen kind of without judgment and without offering advice. Your role in that situation isn't necessarily to fix it, but your role is to listen to them and let them know that you care. And then finally, you want to refer them to resources. So on campus, that could be the Counseling and Psychological Services Center. You know, within the community, it could be a community mental health authority and just making sure that you reach out. And there's also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline that's always available as well. You mentioned earlier in the interview that you're the chairman for the board of directors for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Did this occur before you went into the research that you're doing now, or did this come about as a product of the research that you're performing for your PhD thesis? It happened before. So I was involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention while I was in Utah and where I'm originally from. And then when I moved to Michigan to start my career here at Michigan State, I joined the board of directors for the Michigan chapter. So I've been involved with that organization since about 2012 in various roles, and I became chairman of the board in July of this year. What does your position as chairman of the board entail? So we do suicide prevention work across the state of Michigan. Our chapter covers the entire state, and we focus on education, support, research, and advocacy efforts for suicide prevention. So I help to oversee all of those efforts across the state of Michigan. We do a lot of of out-of-the-darkness walks, which raise money for suicide prevention. We do community walks as well as campus walks. We have one here at Michigan State that happened in April. We'll be doing one again in the spring. And those events help us to raise money to fund these efforts. So last year, we raised nearly a million dollars across the state for these efforts. And this year, we're hoping to do the same. And so part of our role is going into schools and communities and churches, teaching warning signs for suicide and how to effectively intervene. We also fund a lot of research grants at the national level that researchers who are doing suicide prevention work can apply for. We also do a lot of support for those who have survived a suicide attempt or those who've lost loved ones to suicide. And we do a lot of policy work, both at the state level and the federal level. Could you give us some examples of what that policy work looked like? So here at the local level, uh, we've been working with the state to establish a state suicide prevention commission. That's been something I've been working on with State Senator Runstad and others across the state for about two years now. So I've worked with Senator Runstad's office to help draft legislation to establish the State Suicide Prevention Commission. Currently, there's no state-level oversight or sort of coordination around suicide prevention efforts. So what this commission would do is it would bring together experts from different sectors, including public health, academia and research, community mental health, nonprofit organizations, first responders, law enforcement, criminal justice, all of these different areas, and bring them together 
to one, look at the data regarding suicide in the state and figure out, you know, who's dying by suicide, where are they dying by suicide, and what are the factors contributing to those deaths to kind of convene all of these people, again, to provide that coordination and oversight. And three, to issue some recommendations to the state legislature about what we can do to better prevent suicide in our state. At the federal level, we've also been doing some work regarding, for example, the National Suicide Hotline Improvement Act, which was passed last year and signed into law by the president. That directed the FCC to create a three-digit suicide crisis line. Currently, the suicide prevention lifeline is a 1-800 number. And what this does is it would create a three-digit number similar to 911. For example, we all know that if somebody we know goes into cardiac arrest, we know to call 911, we know what those steps are. We want to make sure that mental health crises are kind of treated in that same way as physical health, and creating a three-digit crisis line would be very helpful for that. So that's currently kind of in process with the FCC. So that's kind of what we've done at the state and federal level. How does the foundation take away the negative stigma that's associated with suicide, and how can we get people to feel more comfortable about talking about suicide. So our biggest campaign right now is Be the Voice. And basically what that campaign is about is about having that conversation, for example, with somebody who might be struggling, as well as just making sure that people know that it's okay to talk about suicide and it's okay to talk about mental illness. We have another campaign that we launched a couple years ago with the Jed Foundation and the Ed Council called Seize the Awkward. And it's a series of videos on social media and YouTube with social media influencers and pop stars and other celebrities talking about how to sort of open that that conversation with somebody who might be struggling. It's a very awkward conversation, and we recognize that, but it's about seizing that awkward moment and having that conversation with a friend or somebody who might be struggling. And overall, our goal is to just normalize talking about mental health and talking about suicide in a way that elevates it to the same level as physical health without normalizing it or glorifying it. Yeah, that's a really important distinction to make because while the act of suicide is not okay, the idea of talking about it and trying to seek help from and support from loved ones that exist in your realm is really important. For anybody that's listening, please feel free to talk to somebody if you're feeling down and if you're feeling like suicide is an option in your future. So I think it's really important to distinguish that. Right, absolutely. That's our biggest thing is making sure that people know that it's, it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to talk about it if you're not okay. We also have a lot of trainings that we do that talk about the language we use around suicide. For example, we don't use the word committed when we talk about suicide because it has a negative connotation that's often associated with crime and sin, for example. And so we say things like died by suicide or suicide attempt because committed kind of perpetuates that stigma some further. So it's just about the language we use and just having that open and honest conversation. I think these are wonderful, admirable efforts that you've been making across not only the state of Michigan, but across the federal level as well. What do you think are some policies that we should implement for the future, ways that we can help grow this country further towards suicide prevention? So one thing I think we need to focus on is not only focusing on risk factors for suicide prevention, but also focusing on protective factors. A lot of the research and a lot of the efforts around suicide focus on clinical risk and mental health disorders and risk factors. I think what we need to be focusing more on is sort of the social and societal level factors that we can change to prevent suicide. I think a lot of our focuses tend to be on stopping death as opposed to saving lives, and I think that's an important distinction as well because I think what we need to be doing is making sure that people are accepted in their communities, that people have access to resources that they need, 
and so that we're focusing not on maintaining people's lives and like keeping people alive but also improving the quality of life so we're kind of not only reducing suicide deaths but also reducing suicidal ideation and suicidal despair and what motivated you to pursue this particular field in the first place i lost my brother to suicide in june of 2010 and that's sort of what kind of sparked my interest in this after that, I took an AP psychology class in high school, and that's what kind of hooked me on psychology as a field of study. And then I got into community psychology specifically during my undergraduate at Weber State University in Utah. I did a lot of community research there and found that the community-level stuff was what I was really interested in, more so than sort of the clinical, therapeutic, kind of counselor-therapist perspective. That perspective is obviously very important when it comes to suicide prevention, and we need more counselors and therapists, but I was really interested in sort of the community level and systems level changes that we can implement to prevent suicide. I'm very sorry about your loss. Since you're involved in policy and you're a very strong advocate towards suicide prevention, where do you see yourself after graduate school? Do you see yourself going into academia or more towards a policy route? I see myself going more toward an applied career path. I'm really interested in policy as well as research, and particularly how we translate research into policy and how once we implement policy, we evaluate its effectiveness and whether or not it's working. So I'm very much interested in sort of that private applied sector, either with a nonprofit or with something like a government agency like the National Institutes of Mental Health or something in the applied sector. With everything that you're involved in, what do you plan to do for your PhD thesis research as you start to get into these more primary sources of data that you had mentioned earlier in the interview? I'm really interested in further exploring intersectionality and how it impacts suicide risk for youth and how those marginalized identities increase risk, as well as social support. So what I'm planning to do for my dissertation for my PhD is to do a qualitative study with youth from area high schools and asking them, you know, what are your experiences with marginalization and how has that contributed to suicide risk for you? What does social support look like for you and how is it helpful or not helpful in these different contexts, including, you know, family, school, and community? So I'm really interested in looking at what the youth voice is. I think that's also very much lacking in suicide research. We don't listen to the youth as far as what their experiences are and what they need. So that's what I'm interested in doing. What age do you define as youth? My research focuses on middle school and high school, so I tend to focus on the 12 to 18 range in my own research, and so that's what I'm interested in exploring sort of more in the future as well. Since you're studying people around this age range that are typically undergoing puberty, how do you take into account the hormonal changes that a person would undergo as they're growing up? Because being a teenager is already hard enough, and then when you're feeling suicidal, it makes it even more hard. So how do you tell the difference between a, a person that's just having a tough time going through puberty versus someone that is really getting to the edge and is thinking about ending it all, unfortunately? Right. I think there are kind of two two ways to answer that. The first in terms of research is... The developmental process is very much a part of the research when it comes to suicide risk, and it's something we need to be kind of accounting for. So a part of it is identifying which risk factors apply to which age groups. Something that might be a risk factor for a 12-year-old might not be a risk factor for an 18-year-old. So that's definitely some context you need to consider from a research perspective. From sort of a more prevention and like community-oriented perspective, 
I often get the question from parents doing trainings and things like, how do I know what's just typical teenage behavior and what's a crisis? My response to that is that you should always treat any sort of mention of suicide seriously, whether or not you think they might be joking or just asking for attention. My response is, if they're seeking attention, then you should give them that attention. It's always better to overreact to nothing than to underreact to something. So from a sort of kind of practical standpoint, kind of distinguishing between that typical teenage behavior and something that might be a warning sign, it's just always best to ask the question and kind of have that conversation. Well, thank you so much, Corbin, for coming in this morning to talk about such an important topic with us. It's really important to shed light on the importance of talking about suicide as well as understanding what it means to feel suicidal. If there's anyone interested in learning more about suicide prevention and awareness, we will have links to information that can tell you all about that in the description of our podcast when we post it online afterwards when the episode has aired. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on Sci-Files.